Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. On your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and heard on WSDL 90.7 FM, the Marvel Public Radio. Our weekly exploration, Soundbites is our weekly exploration of issues related to food, agriculture, our environment, and our system of energy here on the Mark Steiner Show. This morning, we get a recipe from media consultant and soon-to-be guest chef this weekend at Nancy in Station North and learn about the high human cost of chicken. But first, I'm joined by reporter Jeremy Cox to talk about his new article, Del Marva Now, The Backyard Backlash, How Del Marva Turned Against Poultry. Jeremy, welcome. Good to have you with us. Hi. Good to be here. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talk at steinershow.org. Uh, you can uh, also tweet us at Mark Steiner. Log on to our Facebook pages, but do call in 410-319-8888 uh, to join in from this conversation. Um, and and we're going to... We, we, Jeremy's article. Let's just talk about your article for a moment. Then I'm going to hear a clip here that we've taken up from some of the town meetings. You, 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 you wrote an article about the backlash taking place now on the eastern shore in Delmarva against the industry that is synonymous with the eastern shore, uh, raising chickens. That it is, yes. Uh, in, you know, I was about to kick off, you know, kind of a whole series of occasional articles about this phenomenon, and I, I felt like I really needed to start at, you know, kind of the why, which is, so many people uh, are taking notice where they haven't taken notice before of um, uh, of the poultry industry here, and you know it's in part because we've never seen poultry like this uh, built on this scale before. So, and, and you talk about the kind of rise that's happening in the Eastern Shore. We've had, I've conducted a couple of town meetings on the Eastern Shore sure. with residents uh, in Somerset and in Virginia. Uh, around these issues of the growth of these chicken houses that and, and we're going to hear a clip from this in a moment but the, the, the issues are really interesting to me because they have a lot to do with the growth of chicken houses not necessarily in things I've uh, moderated uh, been against a specific company or farmers but mm-hmm. this exponential leap in the number of chicken houses that are on people's lands and the right. proposal for more Right, right, yeah. Uh, well, more than 200, at least, between Kent County and Accomack, uh, and I, it's well above that now. Those numbers are several months old and, and don't include uh, a few jurisdictions. Uh, and, and the houses themselves are larger than we've seen before, uh, two, three times the size than what they were back in, let's say, the 60s. Uh, so you're talking 60 foot by 600 foot. And on top of that, uh, you know, it's not the one or two, maybe three houses uh, you know, gathered on an individual property, you're seeing, as I'm sure you heard, uh, you know, anywhere from seven, eight, nine, up to a dozen uh, houses being clustered. And, uh, you know, that kind of concentration has led people to say that this is, you know, an industrial farming or mega farms and, uh, you know, no longer just, you know, mom and pop down the road doing their agriculture you know, the, the, this is uh, the kind of consolidation and concentration, again, like, as we've never seen before. So uh, one of the well, – let's hear this quick clip, if we can. This is, this is some of the voices, and many of these voices are from the community. We'll talk about the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. They're rolling all this in these town meetings. Uh, but this is some of the voices from the town meetings that we that I moderated on uh, the Damarva. The uh, poultry industry of today – is not anywhere near uh, equivalent to any of the agricultural industries that were here formerly. 
It is about the business model. And, the, and uh, formerly, the money stayed here. They were local producers, local um, uh, uh, processors. Now the money leaves the shore. It goes to Purdue and Tyson. Yeah. They are the oligarchs in charge of it. The money goes out. The chickens go out to Qatar, to Asia. The pollution stays here. So let's talk about the subsidy that the residents of the Eastern Shore pay to Purdue and Tyson. Um, and this has got to stop. Each time there is a fire, a spill, another payment is made to the industry from the citizens of the Eastern Shore. Each day there is air pollution and health effects in the environment, in our environment, we pay. We are, we are paying. Disease outbreaks like Fisteria and SARS, which will be, they're inevitable. It's a probabilistic thing. Things break, fans break, trucks uh, uh, roll over, okay? Fires start. There are fires every year on the shore uh, from the uh, chicken waste, okay? Each time as that is, we pay. We pay from the poison shellfish. We pay from our waters that are eutrophied by the phosphorus and the nitrogen and algae blooms. All these costs are not figured in to the profits and loss of Tyson and Purdue, nor are they figured into the cost of their sharecroppers, but they are paid by us. The industry grows. As the industry grows, the subsidy grows. Who is going to do the research to find out how many chicken houses we can support before the tipping point? So that kind of was typical of some of the voices we heard at, at town meetings. And, yeah. and and Jimmy Cox, I mean, and, and the people, we're not talking about people who are coming in from the Western Shores, you say, where much of the critique has happened. These are people who are living in and around uh, all over Delmarva in all three states. Yeah, it's not just the direction of the uh, of the concerns. Yeah, we're, we're accustomed to hearing, you know, the Western Shore, uh, you know, lecture us, uh, if I can put myself in the shoes of, some of these folks, uh, about, you know, the effects of chicken manure on the bay. What's different here is, as you said, this is coming from the shore, and it, it also the, the tenor is, is a little different because, it's yes, the bay is, is part of it, but you're talking about uh, what's happening in our own backyards here. So people are talking not, not just about the bay and eutrophication, as that gentleman said, but also about things like, you know, the, the fans and, and the, the air quality and, you know, what it might mean for our underground aquifers. Uh, will they be polluted by, you know, these, these tightly clustered large operations? Uh, yeah, that was, that was a fascinating quote there. You did a good job of wrapping it all up, kind of what you hear around here. And, and, the, and, and I've heard some people talk about, the, and you, I think you mentioned your article as well, we don't want the Eastern Shore to become Flint. Yeah, that's that's the uh, the metaphor du jour, isn't it? Right <laughs> these days, and for good reason. Uh, I mean, Flint is is a is, is a little different. I mean, in, in the sense that uh, they get their water, their drinking supplies from surface waters, and here on the eastern shore, uh, almost exclusively from underground supplies. So you do get a little bit of uh, you know some filtering of, of of things. You know, it's not just simply washed in. But I, I think the the overall uh, idea still stands that. Uh, you know, we don't want this to be a tragedy of the commons where, uh, you know, when we have these quote-unquote non-point polluters, you know, uh, it's not your traditional, you know, easy-to-regulate smokestack, right? We have it's spread out over a large area, 
And, uh, you know, at what point, as that gentleman said, do you reach that tipping point when uh, you have so many uh, of these chicken houses on top of an aquifer or in a given area before you start seeing effects? And the question is, you know, are the regulations, are the, uh, the not just from the state and the federal, but the local ones, are they strong enough to protect us from those potential consequences? Now, one of the, 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 the one of the groups that have been participated in all these things that that I've, that I've been part of um, has been the Johns Hopkins Center for Liberal Future, who's done a lot of research, <coughs> as you mentioned in your article, mm-hmm. um, and they've submitted some of this research as testimony in Somerset County and other counties uh, right. about the health dangers. Um, and before we turn to the phones of four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight, speak to that a little bit. Yeah, um, well, when you turn to the phones, you, and if people comment on that, you're, you know, it kind of depends on your, your, where you're coming from. If you're a member of the agricultural industry, you'll say that, uh, well, those, many of those studies that they cite in their uh, report had to do with hog farms or places in North Carolina or, or beyond. And therefore, they have little to no bearing on what is happening with the broiler industry here on Delmarva. And on the other side, you'll hear from, you know, people with more of an environmental perspective or people who have this in their backyard saying, you know, uh, broiler or hog or, you know, North Carolina or here, uh, the effects of concentrating animals to this degree are pretty universal and deleterious to our health. And, I, and I've, well, let, let me, folks, do join us here, 410-319-8888. Right to us here at talkinsteinershow.org. Uh, we did invite um, Purdue to join us. Uh, we invited the Chicken Council to join us as well. Uh, both declined to participate um, in the conversations we're having today, um, even when we just offered they could come on alone and separate from anybody else just to talk about their positions. We offered them all a chance to come on, uh, as well as some people from different farmers' councils. Uh, but So we, we did reach out to try to get many voices in here. You do join us here, 410-319-8888. Let's go to line one, 410-319-8888. Kathy, you're welcome. Um, hi, Mark. Hey, Kathy. Kathy Phillips. Hey. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, and uh, thanks. Um, you know, first, I would just like to say kudos to Jeremy for um, tackling such a huge, extensive um, article. And if this is the beginning of a series, I'm really looking forward to um, future articles. Just that, you know, Jeremy and the Daily Times have taken this discussion that's been going on at the very local level within small communities and has now put it out to the world. Um, so, you know, it, I know a lot of people uh, were very happy to see that article come out the way it did. Uh, one thing that I'd like to point out, um, in particular related to the body of research and studies that Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future has put together, um, that is certainly most disturbing to me as, as the coast keeper, as a water keeper here on the eastern shore, um, you know, the um, there have there is a body of evidence and research that has been done actually on the eastern shore related to nitrite nitrate levels in our well water on the eastern shore, and we know that nutrients of nitrogen and phosphorus from chicken manure that is land applied you know is getting into our waterways both ground and surface water um, near Maryland broiler chicken operations. Um, 
But also a University of Maryland Eastern Shore pilot study found that 67% of private wells um, and private wells, you know, all of our residential private wells, um, the owners are responsible for their own testing and maintenance of these wells. And I have a well, and I have to tell you, in 35 years, um, I have never had it tested until recently, (laughs) and I'm still waiting for the results. Um, But uh, the 67% of these private wells on the eastern shore failed to meet drinking water standards um, for total coliform, 36% tested positive for E. coli, and 31% failed the standards for total dissolved solids and pH. Um, and in one study boiler chick- uh, that was done around broiler chicken and corn production, um, those were associated with higher nitrate concentrations, right. um, which is naturally occurring in manure, but these concentrations were happening in our drinking water. Uh, Wicomico County has 60,000 private wells. Um, so, you know, it, it definitely begins to get your attention as you look into look into this industry more and more. Uh, and, Kathy, I'm glad you called in. And, and uh, folks, we encourage other folks to join us here at 410-319-8888. Just speaking to what Kathy said, Jeremy, I mean, I, I that... that and and the, and the and let me just full disclosure the the mm-hmm. town meetings that I've managed on on the shore have been sponsored by by the coast keeper and other and other local groups on the eastern right. shore uh, just to put that out there so it just for full disclosure but, Kathy yes yeah mm-hmm. so Jeremy you want to pick up yeah uh, I mean I hear it and Kathy I'll see you tonight at the uh, the library uh, her group is. Uh, uh, challenged some of the uh, permits being sought by a few of the uh, uh, owners or, or would-be owners of these uh, plants. And, uh, In which county is that? Uh, that's Wicomico County, yeah, okay. uh, downtown library. And uh, it's sort of a new tack that they're taking, and I'll be, I'll be writing about that. And It's uh, the MDE permits, Maryland Department of the Environment. And uh, funnily enough, one of them, you know, she said 60,000 private wells. You know, I, I think... Um, you know, I'm able to write about this because, you know, I'm, I'm living it as well. But I have a private well. I live here a little bit north of Salisbury. And one of the uh, areas, uh, one of the farms that's going to be discussed tonight is uh, if you walk out of my neighborhood through the trees in about a half a mile uh, on Old Dagsboro Road, it's called. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, being only living here for five years uh, kind of brought in some uh, new perspective, but also, you know, um, kind of right in the middle of it. Um, and, and to her point about, um, you know, Somerset County, yeah, it might be worth uh, revisiting that and, uh, you know, doing some, some tests down there because the landscape has changed so much just in the last few years. Um, you know, uh, the back- Backbone Road area, uh, they have, what, 70 uh, new chicken houses uh, in that county alone that were in the pipeline as of last late last year. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how, uh, you know, how where this goes with, with people talking and, and if it gets beyond just sort of these uh, pockets and, and more widespread and if our uh, legislators here, because right now, you know, things like uh, Poultry Litter Management Act and other kind of bills that would be, you know, uh, potentially painful for the litter, uh, I'm sorry, for the uh uh, chicken industry are, are not getting any support here from our delegation. 
So one of the, the two issues that before we run out of time, I wanted to yep. raise with you uh, very quickly, and, and and one has to do with that political question um, that you you have the county executive of I think Wicomico County wrote about who said that mm-hmm. we, we don't need regulations, we don't want them in our county, but you have other yeah. I think it was Wicomico in the other county I think in I guess it was Accomack where the citizens actually voted the council out and voted new people in to put in regulations. So yeah, I think the, uh, North, Northampton. Northampton, yeah. Northampton, excuse me, Northampton County in Virginia, so um, on the Eastern Shore. So, I mean, that, I mean, there's, there's some, so there's interesting juxtapositions here politically about what's building yeah. on the shore that I think, because we're also talking about houses, not necessarily the traditional farmers growing houses, these are people who've never been farmers before building lots of houses. Yeah. Which also is part of the political difference. Well, it was. It was I think it's easier in Northampton because I don't. I, if I recall correctly, I don't believe uh, they have any chicken houses no, down they were, there. They, they, were they don't want them there, so, so they voted them out. Therefore, yeah, yeah. Therefore, there is no uh, pushback necessarily if you, as a legislator, as a local lawmaker, were uh-huh. to, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, that was a that was a fascinating early case of uh, of this kind of backlash that, that I'm talking about. Whereas here in Wicomico, where we have, you know, scores of chicken houses, you have to, um, you know, if you want to get elected around here, um, you know, certainly the chicken industry is, is, is important. And I, I don't mean to sound cynical, but, you know, you, you have to pay attention to your stakeholders, whoever they may be. And I think, uh, Bob Culver is his name is an astute right. politician. And, and, uh, but, uh, it, this this has uh, really come to a boil uh, here, where you have him butting heads with the uh, council president John Cannon, who is on the other side saying, you know, we should probably we should take these actions, we should implement. And, and to be fair, what he's talking about is kind of the the good neighbor policy that uh, the the poultry industry uh, has put forward, uh, which uh, a lot of the folks, Kathy included, say don't go nearly far enough to protect people's health. So. So, so, That's kind of where we stand. So this is, I mean, but this is, I think, the most interesting about this politically is that it's actually happening on the Eastern Shore itself. Um, yeah. And a lot of people you talk to, you interviewed in your article that I've met at these town meetings, uh, are not people who just moved in, though some of them are. Many of them are people who are children, uh, the sons and daughters of farmers who now who mm-hmm. continue to live there, who are worried about where this is taking them. Correct, yeah. You know, about... Two decades ago, we had kind of a wave of of uh, people, uh, mainly who, who, as we we saw a little bit of a real estate boom, a lot of new retirees through the '90s and early 2000s coming in and saying, "Oh gosh, you know, it really smells here in the springtime." Uh, well, you know, that's when they they spread the manure, uh, you know, to fertilize and make crops grow, and that led to uh, a reaction where uh, we passed all of these um, right to farm act. Uh, legislations basically said, yeah, you can complain, but you have no right to. I, you know, when I bought my house, I had to find on the dotted line that said, you know, I understand that farming uh, was here. <laughs> basically, farming was here first. And, uh, you know, the normal, you know, day-to-day stuff is, uh, I understand that's part of what happens here. So um, what's different now is these aren't necessarily people moving in from New Jersey or from the Western Shore. You're seeing people who have been around farms, as you said, uh, since they were little, maybe even they were born here, who were uh, saying, yeah, you know, I celebrate farming. I, uh, you know, I-, I want these guys to be successful and uh, be able to raise their kids and provide, a- have a living and all that. But I, I don't want it to come at my, my the expense of my health and the environment that I cherish here. 
So you'll be so you'll be covering this with some intensity, I know, and this is also coupled with, even though it's not a big deal on the on the sh- on, on the shore, you you wrote about the the Poultry Litter Management Act that mm-hmm. that that all the people from the Western Shore who sponsored forty four in the House, fourteen in the Senate, that would make poultry companies instead of the, the farmers themselves responsible for moving excess manure and more. So I mean, so this is this is I mean I think heating up in ways politically it has not is, is has not been for for years. Yeah, uh, and and you see in places like Accomac, which has passed some uh, some new zoning regulations, which again, uh, largely based on the uh, Demarvo poultry industry uh, recommendations, and therefore you know not exactly embraced by the local environment uh, crowd, local you know the residents who started it down there, and similarly in Somerset, which is uh, just now coming before the county uh, commission there. Uh, kind of council uh, similar uh, rules. So, yeah, uh, that's the other part of this is we are hearing we are starting to get some of this trickle into the uh, into the political circles now, and uh, as I said, but not maybe not so much up into the Annapolis level, at least as far as it concerns um, you know the, these local effects, which traditionally have you know local zoning laws. Uh, home rule and that sort of thing. You can kind of understand why Annapolis isn't stepping in. But, uh, yeah, I, I suspect this won't be the last time we talk about it. We will not. Jeremy Cox, Salisbury Daily Times business reporter. Jeremy, thanks so much for taking your time today. You got it, man. appreciate it. And Kath Phillips, thanks for calling in, the ST Coast Waterkeeper, for bringing in her ideas to this as well. Uh, and we will continue this conversation. We'll be doing more of these things on the shore as well. You're listening to Sound Bites here on the Mark Steiner Show. When we return, we'll get a recipe from media consultant Catalina Bird and learn about and learn about a recent Oxfam survey of, of poultry workers at several plants in the Delmarva region conducted by the Maryland Legal Aid Committee for Civil Rights and others. It's called Lives on the Line, the, human co- the High Human Cost of Chicken. Stay with us. Mark Steiner, welcome back here to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. I'll remind you the Mark Steiner Show is supported in part by the Maryland State Education Association. From school funding to testing, you can learn about the important issues affecting Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association's website at MarylandEducators.org. That's MarylandEducators.org or going to SteinerShow.org and the Maryland State Education Association's banner is there. Back to Soundbites here, and we are about to have a conversation about a report that came out about the state of health of poultry workers on the eastern shore and around the country, the eastern shore. We're joined in the studio by Sean Boringer. Baringer. Baringer. Sorry, Sean. That's all right. Sean Barringer, who is chief counsel at the Maryland Legal Aid, where he oversees delivery of services to clients throughout Maryland. Maryland Legal Aid has 
15 offices across the state, including an office in Salisbury that serves the four Lower Eastern Shore counties. Uh, and um, the Maryland Legal Aid's Migrant Farmworker Project provides outreach advice and representation to farm workers throughout Maryland. And Minor Sinclair is director of the U.S. Regional Office of Oxford America that put out the report. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. And we did reach out to Purdue to join us um, and to uh, bring on the vice president who wrote the letter to the editor, uh, even in a separate conversation from this one to have their voice heard, but they de- they declined to come on, and uh, Bill Satterfield from the Delmarva Poultry uh, Industry also declined to come on. So we just want to let you know that, that we reached out to everybody in this conversation. So, uh, Minor, why don't you be off and talk about the, the essence of this report and what you did? Sure. Oxfam released a report uh, back in October, really looking at the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me there. That's, That's right. Uh, really looking at the poultry industry as a whole and seeing as how the uh, as as the United States is consuming you know much uh, more white meat we used to consume 20 pounds per per person per year now we're up to 90 pounds per person a year and the automation of the industry you know what impact that has on the 250,000 uh, workers who are on the line working in the poultry processing you know first of all the line speeds are incredibly fast uh, workers are doing like 20,000 motions, 30,000 motions a shift. Birds are going by around 2,000 birds an hour. So the repetitive motion causes muscle strain, injury, carpal tunnel to your hands, to your, sh- to your shoulder, to your elbows. It's a, it's a, it's a dangerous industry that uh, produces seven times the national average in terms of, uh, in terms of industries. The problem is, is, that, is it not only dangerous, but then the, then the companies don't really... Um, deal with the injuries as workers face them. We have talked to worker after worker who, when they complain, go back to work, take two aspirin, and if you really insist, you're, you're fired. I spoke with a worker uh, who was fired last December for complaining about uh, about uh, nausea and, and uh, being faint on the line. Uh, it really is egregious. So first of all, that's one issue. The second is the, the wages are just are, are, are miserably low. Uh, they've dropped 40% uh, over, the, over the past three decades. Uh, beginning wage is around ten dollars. Well, that's okay, but still a, a poverty wage. And for that, for that kind of um, you know arduous and dangerous conditions, you you you'd expect that uh, people to at least earn enough so they're not on food stamps or other kind of government assistance. And the third piece, Mark, is just the you know kind of the respect for the workers. I mean, these are these are you know people who uh, many Im- immigrants, some people without papers. Uh, they really don't feel like they have another choice, so they're incredibly vulnerable and fearful. And uh, you know, they're, they're they're treated with a lot of disrespect. We've we've talked with workers after worker who feel like they can't even go to the bathroom on the line. Uh, that you know, they wear diapers or they're forced to urinate on on, on the line because it's just the decency of being able to, you know, raise your hand, be replaced on the line, and access the bathroom just isn't there. So um, Oxfam did a did a report. We've been engaging uh, with the top four companies, including Purdue and Tyson, both with plants on the eastern shore, uh, you know, calling on them to say is that, you know, they, they just really need to do better. Uh, it's in their interest, and it's in the interest of the consumer. So, um, uh, Sean, I, I, and you, your legal aid represents a lot of these workers, right? Right, right. So, I mean, but when you saw the response from Purdue, I guess you read it, in the Baltimore Sun, uh, from uh, Kerry Garman, uh, Vice President for Human Resources, um, saying that outlining the money people are paid, $12 after a 
day orientation period, $12 an hour, with a 401k, uh, paid time off, um, benefits adding up to $5.12 more, millions of dollars in automation to, to, to help with repetitive issues, um, and that when they did their own survey, associate survey, that 90% of the associates were positive about their jobs and that the idea that associates denied, denied bathroom breaks is simply not believable. It stretches all credibility that USDA inspectors and food plants would tolerate employees being forced to urinate at their workstations, exclamation point. Uh, what, what are my thoughts? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think, for, for, first of all, the, the survey that we did, uh, we, we talked to workers at um, five different companies. So it wasn't targeted. All on the Eastern Shore? All on the Eastern Shore. Uh, in Delaware and Maryland, we have a contract to provide um, uh, services to farm workers on, in, in both Delaware and, and, and Maryland. Um, you know, I think some of the, uh, uh, the the benefits and policies that were outlined in their response were, were laudable. Um, you know, but we we did have these um, anecdotal reports from from um, employees that uh, spoke to the um, you know t- some of these issues that that Miner uh, mentioned the uh, the inability to. Uh, take bathroom breaks. The uh, you know the um, the difficulty working in these situations in very cold temperatures. Uh, the uh, injuries that folks uh, suffered. Uh, we we had uh, three quarters of of the workers say that they've had injuries or pain while working. Uh, so um, you know we know this is very hard work. Um, it's um, and it's in done in very isolated settings. Um, I, I can say that a little bit over 15 percent of the uh, uh, the uh, the workers that we interviewed spoke English. Uh, so this is mostly a, a migrant population. I think over 40 percent were Haitian workers. Um, you know, with regard to pay, I think uh, you know we did ask uh, the workers their rate of pay. Um, we had uh, three that reported uh, wages over. Uh, Twelve dollars and twenty-five cents. Uh, all the rest of the workers were were below that rate. So, you know, again, I you know I, the 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 Purdue some of the policies they have are, are, are laudable. Um, I think from our perspective at Legal Aid, it was about um, you know in, interviewing a, a very vulnerable population, uh, a population that that works uh, under very difficult conditions, and being able to share their stories about their working experiences um, with the public. So I clearly in, in all these things, I mean, this creates a huge uh, debate in in this state. Um, the chicken industry is a huge industry in the state of Maryland. Uh, it's the king industry for one of the royalty on the eastern shore. Um, and so I, so when, when people are trying to parse out the reality here uh, of what's happening, I mean, you know, when everybody hears things like the, the, you're having to urinate at your workstation, but the stories of other workers, actually the stories I read were of workers not necessarily in the state of Maryland but other states who, who had crippling hand in, I, I, injuries, had to stop working, uh, were organizing, so they were fired. Um, so, I mean, I, I want to get a sense of what you think the reality is on the ground here. I mean, um, and I mean, immigrant workers are vulnerable. Before that, the workers in the industry were African Americans on the Eastern Shore, mm-hmm. and and now they're mostly Haitian and Latino immigrants. Um, is that right? Uh, that that that's right. Uh, again, I think our survey found about forty percent of the well, forty percent of the workers that we talked to for the survey were Haitian. But uh, many other uh, uh, Central American uh, uh, immigrants and immigrants from the Caribbean. 
Um, so again, it's a vulnerable population, and they're in f- fairly remote areas on the Lower Eastern Shore. Um, they're in areas where there are not a lot of other alternatives for employment, and so those conditions can can lead or can exacerbate the um, you know the leverage that the employers and the supervisors have over these folks in the workplace. Um, so, and, and so, Minos, is it, is it, your, your study was across the U.S. Right. It was a national study that combined both, uh, you know, sort of on-the-ground on the interviews. We interviewed dozens of workers as well as sponsoring other surveys. Uh, we sponsored a survey in northwest Arkansas, Mark, of 501 workers. And it said there that 91% of the workers claimed they had no sick leave. Well, you know, these are the people that are handling fresh food, you know, and you want them coming in sick to work and sneezing and mishandling the food and or, or, you know, not really having, picking up the vulnerability, not having any real protections around whistleblower uh, uh, rights and protections if they see something that shouldn't be happening. Um, so the, uh, uh, we've also engaged the companies directly, uh, and we've seen some movement. Uh, unfortunately, Purdue, you know, refused to talk with us, and we reached out to them repeatedly. So we were glad to see the response they, they did with a. Uh, rebuttal op-ed. It's a, it's really the first time we've we've heard from them, and we we reach out to them all many times. Uh, Tyson, we've been engaged with them. Uh, we were pleased to see is that they they took note of this and did increase uh, the wages for thirty four thousand of their frontline employees. Uh, you know that's a good first step. There's a lot more needs to be done, but it does show us is that companies. Um, you know can be uh, be responsive uh, to this kind of pressure, particularly when they. You know, see, it's the consumers who are concerned about where their work, uh, where their food comes from. Just like you know, buy local and buy organic. I mean, do you want your meat products treated in this in this kind of way either? Um, so, I, I'm, I'm, so what do we really? I guess, Sean, you've also not been able to get through the local industries here and have conversations. Uh, no, we we've not. But attempted to. Um, really, we we have not. Uh, you know the. Um, you know, again, we, we sort of saw this study as as part of our of our human rights uh, uh, initiative at, at Maryland Legal Aid, and Legal Aid taking a role as a as an NGO, a non governmental organization that can um, reach vulnerable populations and 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 tell their and and tell their stories. So uh, we you know we have not engaged with the, the poultry industry about that. We do have some litigation pending. Uh, against, what kind of litigation? Um, it's a, a wage and hour case. Um, what does that mean? Uh, allegation that the uh, that our client was not paid the for the hours that they worked at the plant, and uh, issues regarding you know that then that affects uh, eligibility for overtime pay as well. So, uh, is anybody a couple questions here? I want to get to the heart of where you all think the the differences might be in different places in the Eastern Shore or in the, or in the U.S. in terms of how people treat in different companies. Um, it seems like there's a difference in different places. Uh, but who is, b- b- not beyond in terms of not saying it's not important work, but who uh, beyond legal legal aid work um, and de- defending the legal rights of these workers uh, and doing studies, who's organizing? Is anybody moving to, to kind of really represent them or have them represent themselves? Um. 
Miner probably knows the answer to that better than I do, Mark. Uh, I think there have been organizing efforts uh, on, on the eastern shore uh, for these workers. Um, again, le- legal aid hasn't that's hasn't been involved role, in that. Think, it's, yeah. it's not our role, right. and, and there are actually um, restrictions on right, what right, we right. can do in that capacity. So <laughs> I know that, uh, we, right. we don't get involved in those uh, activities. Minor? Sure. Let me jump in. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, unions have a role to play here. About a third, well, slightly less than a third of the workforce is unionized. So having kind of worker representation, grievance, uh, whistleblower protections is, is really key. But that's only in 30%, not 70%, which are which don't have that kind of protection. Oxfam has been supporting um, uh, worker centers, which are not union efforts, but uh, more community-based uh, worker uh, worker centers that educate, uh, provide support to workers and their families and, and their communities. And that's a real growing uh, a growing effort with with efforts in North Carolina. There's been some experience of that in Delmarva, which we've supported. Arkansas, Mississippi, Minnesota, et cetera. I think the, um, uh, you know, beyond that is that there's a business case here, too. It's not, it's not just the consumer pressure and the advocate pressure, but, you know, my God, it can't be good business to have, you know, 100% turnover in a year. You know, you've got to train new people, and they're not as efficient. You know, why not really sort of kind of invest in the, in the, workers, the workers you have? And secondly, around food safety. You know, workers are going to be the front-line defense around, around food safety. Uh, there was a Department of Labor inspection came out uh, uh, this past September that, that showed metal gravings uh, embedded into the chicken and chicken meat. Well, you know, uh, incentivize workers say, hey, that's a problem. You know, let, let's call attention. Let's not have this happen. Um, you know, chicken uh, carries more pathogens than, you know, any other fresh food we introduce into the, into the household. Um, and to do everything we can to sort of kind of protect that this food is is safe and produced under you know safe and fair working conditions, I think is really important. I think so. I think there's a whole business case here that uh, the industry, in part, has been um, some of these are family-owned shops. Uh, they're kind of done it the old way. They're, they're not really thinking about investing in the future, and in, in, as other industries that are much more kind of um, forward-looking have done. And uh, I think there's a business case that if they would just put their minds to it, they would see ergonomics practices make good sense for the company. Retaining your workers makes good sense for the company. In- investing in safe products makes good sense for the company. Uh, you know, and since you're, you and the folks in, uh, at Legal Aid are on the ground a lot working with people, can you just take a couple of minutes from your perspective, their perspective, to describe what it's like? to work on that line in those poultry houses for these workers, many of them immigrants, Haitian workers, and the rest? Well, well take, oh, I, I'm sorry, Minor. Go, go, go ahead. Okay. i just take a first stab here. You know, and I've, I've you know, so we've supported worker, worker, uh, workers in the Delmarva, too, and spoken with them. And, you know, it is, no one denies that this is tough, arduous work in sort of kind of cold and wet uh, working conditions. So, it, you know, it is, it is tough. Um, you know, what happens is that these are often in very small communities. Uh, Jacks, Alabama has a thousand people and, uh, you know, yet employs 1,500 people in the plant. And when, you know, if you want to stay in Jacks, Alabama, you don't have anywhere else to go. And OSHA did a, an investigation there and found out that one woman went to the, to the clinic 90 times complaining about wrist pain before they, she finally got a reference to and, and, and found out that she was severely injured. So that, you know, the workers that we've talked to are concerned most around two issues, you know, just the, 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 the health factors. 
spoke with another worker who injured his right hand after nine years working at a Tyson plant, and he was willing to go back and say, I still got one good hand left. You know, that speaks to sort of kind of the vulnerability and the desperation that, that people feel. Uh, I spoke with a, a woman uh, this past week in Mississippi, and she talked about being, you know, followed into the, into the bathroom by her white supervisor. And, um, you know, it just, I just couldn't see this happening in a, in a, in a, in a, a modern business that cares about its employees. There, I mean, it's it's dangerous work. I mean, uh, you know, we we know a lot of the, you know, we we know about the job descriptions of, of the line employees. I mean, many of them involve uh, cutting implements. Uh, when you're talking about, um, you know, cutting the chicken, eviscerating the chicken, killing the chicken. I mean, folks are working with sharp instruments. I think that's where a lot of the uh, uh, the injuries come from. If you talk about also, you know, one. Uh, one theme here is is sort of the line speed uh, of of the assembly line. So you're working with uh, you know dangerous cutting implements with a fast moving uh, a line, uh, so that you know in, in increases the the risk of of injuries happening. Um, you're dealing with uh, working in cold conditions, as we said. So I think that contributes to you know some of these hand and wrist injuries that that Miner mentioned. Uh, the workers report, you know, shoulder and back problems. Um, the there are very strong chemicals used um, to um, maintain the uh, the sanitary uh, uh, facilities at, at at the plant. So there's exposure to those, uh, you know, bleaches and and chemicals that are used for cleaning. Some of the workers report, um, you know, getting that those materials into their eyes and and having swelling of the eyes and and, and problems. Uh, uh, there, so um, uh, you know, it it is it's it's really it's really tough work. So, I, just just a quick question here um, before we run out of time. In the next few minutes we have left. Um, I, I'm just thinking of a a political question here, and, and let me do start with you, uh, Sean, then go to Minor to close up very quickly. What 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 politically can be done? I know that you can't do politics. That's not what you do. But I'm just curious, like uh, laws that could be passed. Regulations that could be that are or are not in place in terms of protecting the workers you're talking about. Well, again, I defer to Minor on those issues. I know. I mean, OSHA has a, a role here in terms of um, in, in terms of regulating the industry, regulating the safety. Um, you know, to to certain detail as to how fast the line goes and uh, what protection uh, the workers are are provided. Um, uh, you know, so. You know, again, I'll I'll sort of defer to Minor on those issues because uh, I know Oxfam has been working on some policy. But there are no matters. state laws in Maryland that are directly related to this uh, in terms of workers' rights in uh, those places. None that, poultry plants. None, none specifically that I know of. Okay, just I just I was just curious about that. I mean, as a lawyer, that's why I'm asking that question. Mm-hmm. So, Minor. Yeah, I think I think two things. Certainly, rolling back the line speed. You know, 140 birds a minute is just too fast to, to be done uh, safely and even efficiently. Uh, protecting uh, protecting whistleblowers, so those courageous people who are willing to speak out are, are protected. And the third one, I think, is uh, better measurement. Is is that uh, uh, five years ago the industry was permitted to no longer have to report musculoskeletal injuries as part of their uh, hmm. uh, regular uh, reporting requirements to the, to the federal government. And to, to have better reporting, I think, will really sort of kind of drive change because they say is that, well, you know, there's no industries. I mean, carpal tunnel could have happened anywhere. Um, 
And then uh, I think that would sort of kind of force an accountability on, on the industry uh, that isn't isn't there currently. So, uh, you know, we we documented a lot uh, uh, a lot of this material that that, that I've shared with in our report lies on the line, which has you know testimonies from from workers, videos uh, uh, videos of their experiences. You know, really looks at the industry as its progress. It's a very profitable industry, so there's. Tyson's wages went up 10% um, uh, just just recently when we uh, uh, were talking with them. Um, so there is money in the in the industry to be able to sort of kind of make some of the payments here that would that you know obviously will be required. Well, uh, this is something we're going to continue to, to talk about, and I, it's a very critical issue. And we, we will we will be linking to uh, the report lives on the line. Uh, at both soundbitesradio.org and at signershow.org for you to read. Uh, and uh, and we will continue to reach out to the industry itself to come here and talk about these issues and to talk to our state legislators about it uh, in different conversations to kind of push where we are, at least here in the state of Maryland, where the heart of this broadcast is. I want to thank Minor Sinclair, Director of the U.S. Regional Office of Oxfam America, for the work they're doing for joining us. Minor, thank you so much. Glad to. Sean Boehringer. I got it right this time. Beringer. Be- Did I say I had to do it again? I'm so sorry, Sean. <laughs> Sean Beringer. Uh, I'll, I'll work on my German. Sean Beringer. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Beringer, who is chief counsel of uh, Maryland, at Maryland Legal Aid, where he oversees the delivery of services to clients throughout the state, uh, and uh, the Maryland Legal Aid's program that AIDS Migrant Farm Worker Project provides outreach advice and representation of farm workers throughout Maryland. We'll be linking to their work as well. And Sean and Minor, thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. We're going to have a short break and come back. It's time for Catalina Bird to hear a recipe she's cooked up. Don't go away. This is Mark Steiner right here on the Mark Steiner Show and Sound and Sound Bites. We're about to have a conversation with somebody who's usually on the show talking about politics. But now she's not talking about something different. Catalina Bird, media consultant, political strategist. Catalina will be the featured artist and guest chef this Sunday, February the 21st at Nancy uh, by Snacks Sunday Breakfast with the Artist Program, 11 a.m., 131 West North Avenue, Kevin Brown's Place, downtown Kevin Brown's other restaurant. Catalina, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you. It's fun to be here in a different capacity. <laughs> so, I had no idea. I mean, I know you like to talk politics and do other things like that and jump on and off TV and do your television stuff, but you also cook. I do. <laughs> I, I really do. It's like a real serious thing for me. Okay. People that follow my Instagram, they know I'm one of those weird people that take pictures of their food. I've noticed that, actually. I actually, you've seen those, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> So, so I'm excited. And yeah. Kevin gave me an awesome opportunity, and this is my first time cooking in a commercial kitchen. So I'm really excited. Wow. And my dad's going to be there. Oh, cool. Um, cool. That's awesome. That's wonderful. So talk. So what are you making? So the menu on Sunday is maple sriracha chicken. Maple what? What kind of chicken? Maple, maple sriracha. Uh-huh. Kind of sweet and spicy. Um, it's a maple sriracha chicken with French toast and fried apple. 
and apple cinnamon bread pudding mm. with caramel sauce, all mm. from scratch. All, all from you're gonna make all from scratch. Yes. So what time do you have to start this? We're supposed to get to the restaurant myself and my my sous chef around seven thirty eight o'clock. Kevin said, Oof. and doors open at ten thirty. So we'll be doing. We have two hours of prep and two hours of serving time. And anybody who's not there by one doesn't get to eat. You, I mean, that's a lot of work. But uh, wow! So tell us about this chicken dish. What is this chicken dish? Maple sriracha chicken. Okay, what is so- it? What is it? It's fried chicken. You know how you do chicken and waffles? So yeah, I yeah, 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 yeah. I've been for a long time, and I had to find some other kind of way um, to make this that combination work for me. And I, made, I started doing French toast and fried chicken. And then I got tired of just regular fried chicken, and I tried all these different kinds of French toast. <laughs> so I started playing with sauces for the fried chicken. And this maple sriracha one was a hit at my daughter's birthday party last year, even with the little kids. Because even though sriracha is typically spicy, yeah. the maple balances it out. And um, even the kids loved it. So actually, this is the exact menu of Salem's birthday from last year. It was a Hello Kitty um, <laughs> brunch, birthday brunch. So, and that's exactly what the menu is. <laughs> so give us a recipe. Tell us how you, tell us, tell us how you prepare this. Okay, so with your chicken, you want to just go ahead and season it before you put it in the flour. I use salt, pepper. Um, usually some type of seasoned salt. I like McCormick salt and spice the best. Garlic powder, onion powder. Put it in the flour. Make sure the flour is also seasoned. Fry it the way you regularly would fry chicken. In a separate saucepan, you take the equal amount of maple syrup as well as sriracha sauce, um, and you mix it and you cook it until anybody who's ever cooked candy knows how you cook uh, corn syrup until it boils. And bubbles, that's kind of the same consistency you want for the sauce. You mix it and you let it simmer until it boils, and then you add the chicken for a light toss to coat it, and then take it right back out. And it's amazing. So, so then, I mean, so chicken is cooked separately, and you pour this over the chicken? You, you put the chicken in the sauce while it's in the saucepan, and just toss it around enough to get fully coated. The chicken is already cooked? Yes, it has to already be cooked. So you've got to time this thing just right. Yes, timing is everything. <laughs> timing is everything. <laughs> and if you cook the sauce too long, it gets too sticky, and then you can't, it becomes candy on top of the Yeah, yeah, that doesn't eat. work. Because <laughs> maple syrup is like corn syrup. It's so when, syrup. When, the, when the syrup and sriracha is bubbling, is you, you turn it down? No, just drop the chicken in it. It'll, that'll, that'll temper the temperature. And just make sure it gets a good coat. You can't, you, you can't keep reusing the same sauce. So I'll be cooking everything to order on Sunday. Oh, wow. Uh, because the sauce will thicken the longer that it's on the heat. You have to start over with every batch of wings or chicken tenders or whatever kind of chicken you choose to use. So now when you, this chicken, is it, is it all dark meat, dark and, dark and white meat both? I don't eat dark meat at all, um, but I imagine that the recipe could work with dark meat. I use, I use either chicken tenders or like chicken wing pieces, like the party Gotcha, wings. gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm a dark meat kind of guy, but that's all right. So, so. <laughs> you can put a chicken leg in there. Okay. It still works the same Five. Way. Chicken leg is good. <laughs> so tell me very quickly, what's the recipe for the bread pudding? Okay, so Target makes this absolutely awesome apple cinnamon breakfast bread that is good for French toast and all kinds of things. But if you go get it and leave a loaf out for two days at the very least, let it get stale, chop it up, 
you then you already have a great base for uh, apple cinnamon bread pudding. Where all you have to do is then just add some milk and some eggs, mix it up, bake it on 425 for about 30 to 45 minutes, and it comes out amazing. It has so much flavor. And you really didn't have to do anything to it. It's kind of a shortcut for people who don't make their own bread mm-hmm. or have time to do all of those things. You just buy this really great bread, let it sit out, put the, the cup of milk and two eggs into it. Uh, you don't need any sugar. You don't need any vanilla extract. Everything is in the bread already. And mm. just bake it, and it's going to be awesome. So join our wonderful Catalina Bird will be the featured artist and guest chef this Sunday, February the 21st at Nancy's by Snacks. Nancy by Snacks, Sunday breakfast on North Avenue, 131 West North Avenue at 11, 11 a.m. Doors open when? Doors open at 10.30. Breakfast is served at, brunch is served at 11. So get there early, so get your seat and have this incredible meal. It sounds wonderful. Catalina's come up with a new way of eating chicken and waffles. So, <laughs> Catalina, chicken and French toast. That's it. I love it. Kelly Bert, thank you so much, love. Thank you. I appreciate it. Looking forward to eating some of that chicken. Me too. All right. <laughs> thank you. So that does sound good. The Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineers are Andre Moulton. Our engineer at Marvel Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our assistants, our producers are Siana Greaves, Morgan Barber, Manifa Wilson, and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast of Mark Steiner Show, share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, The Voice of the Community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.